Yeah, Mark and I didn't really think things through when we were talking about the uh, uh, preaching schedule, realizing we're not putting lamentations during the whole week and kids are in with us in the service. So, you know what, maybe God's got something very special to share uh, with, um, with kids. And hopefully, no, actually, I'm convinced all of us. Um, question I want to engage with today is how do we reconcile suffering? It's been a great massive couple of years. I don't think anyone will deny that. What do we make for, for the suffering of the world that we keep going through? What do we make of the suffering I forget? You forget? I think our culture and society have a few standard responses. One is to deny it, to ignore it, to uh, Sweep it under the table, not not willing to share. It's interesting. On Tuesday night, we had um, the discussion with the, the men's event. Uh, cancer and faith is excellent. One of the things I reflected after that, there was a, a whole number of men there who had experienced or uh, are currently um, uh, currently have cancer that I wasn't aware of, and um, it made me think that's not something that we we openly share or talk about very much at all, unfortunately. And same with things like mental health and, and other things. There's a lot of issues that uh, men and women struggle with that there's no space to talk about. And, and you know, our culture, the culture of avoiding and denying suffering. Um, and often, and what we've kind of seen recently, because there's been no space to talk about, the other end of that spectrum is that there's overreaction to suffering. Of, of fighting back, of demanding justice, of um, or even you know, look at what we're experiencing right now. Um, and I don't want to get too political, but the fact that uh, we can't sing in church uh, in order to avoid um, a virus, but absolutely, there are, there's um, that's something we want to avoid. Um, but the risk, you know, at what cost to not be able to sing and express our worship and and even like businesses and this whole whole range of different things um, that the government is reacting to. I think in some ways, overreacting. I think they've been doing a brilliant job. Adelaide's been doing amazing. But um, yeah, it, it demonstrates another response to suffering. We overreact. Um, the other way our culture responds to suffering is uh, victimizing. Getting caught up in the victim culture, being defined by the facts uh, of the suffering. And even, you know, and I feel this in myself right now, like I feel like I'm oppressed because I'm not allowed to sing in church, right? I feel like that. Like, that's ridiculous considering the number of Christians around the world who can't sing under threat of death and imprisonment. And I'm Like, you know, but that's part of, you know, our culture. We see that uh, as well in, in um, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, the, even just um, a whole range of things. Not deny the suffering or, or the question or the, what they've experienced, but then being defined by that uh, is, is a means of responding to suffering. That's, that's how the world 
reconciled, deals with suffering. And we all do all of those things too, don't we? We all do too. And that's the question that we're going to be exploring in the heart of our questions. What do we make of suffering? How do we deal with uh, the suffering that we experience? And so we're going on a journey through the book of Lamentations. Now, I want to uh, make clear that this is not the guide to lament. Uh, lament is a style of prayer and song. And this series isn't uh, only or um, primarily to teach us how to lament. It's a journey through the book of Lamentations. And um, the reason is, is uh, because we're not in their situation. I'll talk about this a bit more. But Lamentations is written into a specific time and place that we're just not in. We're not in that place. So we can't appropriate that song for ourselves. The other thing to realize is we're actually we're in a very different place. In redemptive history, in the history of the Bible, we're, we are in a very different place to the Israelites who wrote Lamentations. Uh, so there's lots we can learn from Lamentations. There's lots we can learn about God about suffering, about the world, and about how to lament. But I just want to be careful not to, to overreach uh, and apply to ourselves. So what we're going to do, we're going to um, spend a bit of time, first off, looking at the context of lamentations. When was it written? Why was it written? And then, and then also look at what content, how, like what, what's, what's in the book of the lamentations. And, uh, and then we'll go a bit deeper into uh, lamentations one and a little bit of two. So let's think about the context. Often lamentations, if you look up in your Bibles, uh, you'll find it at, after Jeremiah. And often, a lot of people believe that's because Jeremiah wrote lamentations, uh, which I'm unconvinced. I think lamentations is probably written a bit too late for to Jeremiah. But what it does, so it's not necessarily by author, but what it is linked to Jeremiah is its theology. Jeremiah is all about uh, Israel being exiled. And Lamentations is written while the Israelites were exiled from Israel. <coughs> for a slighting. So in the story of the Bible, God creates the world. He made a people for himself, a special people to have a special relationship with. And he called that a covenant. And, and the covenant was that they would be his people and he would bless them if they would obey him. And trust him and not turn away to other gods, to other, other um, gods. And did Israel obey God? Did Israel trust him? No. No. Did Israel turn to other gods? Yes. It's really interesting um, that we're coming into this book of Lamentations after uh, the life of David. And we just hit David's sin where he Sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. And like that's kind of the tipping point uh, for the kings of Israel of like he disobeyed God's law. And that then led, continued to lead the kings that got worse and worse to the point that eventually uh, God was set up and exiled Israel. Uh, it's also interesting the kids have been learning about the Ten Commandments, which is all about uh, the way to live. In God's covenant, in that special relationship with God, that the Ten Commandments is, is the way, is, is how God uh, 
before that God gave to his wife, they might live in that family. But they didn't. And God uh, waits patiently. You know, he didn't exile them or punish them straight away. He waits until um, uh, finally in 587 BC, uh, Babylon comes and exiles um, Israel. So next slide. So this is where uh, Lamentations is written. Israel had a special relation with God, but they, they rejected that. They disobeyed God, and they're exiled, uh, driven away from the land, away from the place where they had that special relationship with God. And Jerusalem, that great city, was destroyed. And it's a really grim place. And that's the context that I love Lamentations is, is written. And they're lamenting their experience as Israelites being exiled, being separated from God. We'll, we'll talk about that bit. And that's not our situation. Uh, it's a different time, so we can't just apply limitations directly to ourselves. This is not our song, but it is that is our God, uh, the same God. So there's lots of uh, Lamentations doesn't have all the answers, but gosh, it's got a lot of questions. Um, and so we'll get into that. Now, Lamentations, come out the next slide, I think, that is uh, five poems. And uh, the first one is all about Jerusalem's fall, then there's the second one is all about God's wrath and anger. The third is, uh, and is from the perspective of the individual uh, and his suffering. And the more of it is its conviction that God is faithful through it all. And the fourth is all about God's wrath, and then the fifth, uh, a prayer of renewal. Now, in English poetry and English uh, speaking, public speaking, we usually say like the big, uh, you know, the big um, climax of the the, the, uh, the hard hitting stuff right for the end. And look, I'm going to be doing it today as well, so pay attention to the end. But, this, but that's just how English poetry works. You build up to the climax, right at the end, so like end of the bank. Israelite poetry works differently. It, it's uh, often uh, the, the best stuff, the really important interpretive ideas, issues, um, information is in the middle. And what we see is uh, these, um, the, all these poems are acrostic poems. So I've represented it there. You, you notice that each chapter has 22 verses. And that's because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so every verse starts with uh, the first letter of that of the corresponding verse, the alphabet. Except for the third verse, third chapter, which has 66 verses. Because it's a triple acrostic. Instead of going ABC, it's AAA, BBB, CCC. So there's a big emphasis made on the third, uh, third poem. And that's the climax. That's the, the main truth that we interpret the whole book through is through chapter three. And like I said before, it's all about God's faithfulness. Right? And then next week, Dave Shepherd from Redundant is going to come. He's going to preach on that. I've gone into detail in that. It's going to be amazing. The other thing you'll notice is that the fifth book is different. There's a disruption. There's something different about the fifth chapter. 
it's no longer a apostate. It's random in terms of the, the letters. Still 22 verses. So there's, there's a disruption. There's something changing in that. It's, it's special as well. And that's uh, that chapter is all about a community prayer of renewal. And in two weeks, Mark's going to be back from leave. He's going to be refreshed and ready to go, preaching up the sword, all of that. But today, I have the fun task of preaching one and two, uh, which is um, grim and dark and depressing. But I think we need to be there. To understand the light, we need to understand the darkness. To recognize light, we need to realize that we, what, what the darkness is. And so I'm going to read um, so We're going to work through it progressively, but also pick up on things that, that kind of go across the whole chapter, focusing on one, a little bit of two, um, and then uh, then I'll sort of work on that one. So if you have your Bible, talking about Lamentations 1, will also be on the screen. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The rose to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her at concert festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she's in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are needs. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before her foe. All the slender has departed from Dora's arm. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembered. All the treasures that were hers and vegetable, when her people fell into enemy hand, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid, laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those who are forbidden to enter your assembly. All that her people groan as they search for bread. They borrow their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. I think uh, it's really fascinating that first verse, uh, how deserted lies the city, so once so full of people. Uh, what what week more than ever 
we could appreciate the, the, the sand of that verse. You know, the promise of a city, uh, the hustle and bustle, the economy, the industry, the opportunity, going in and going to the markets and enjoying a coffee with friends and going doing some work, having a picnic in the park, and all of that being brought to its knees from a virus. Cities in lockdown around Australia. Thank God, thank God for that. But we understand that 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 cry, don't we? We can appreciate that more this week, uh, probably more than ever. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, once the envy of the nation, it was prosperous, it was respected. Uh, nations came to them for advice, for trade, for all kinds of things. But now it's destroyed. It's ruined. The Israelites are lamenting the fall of Jerusalem, also known as Zion. And in in um in this chapter, in both chapters one and two, there's two voices. There's a narrator explaining the lament of, of Jerusalem and talking about it. But there's also God of Zion. Jerusalem herself lamenting, crying out for the affliction that she's experiencing. She's like a widow, weeping bitterly. And there's no one to help her. The roads are desolate, the festivals empty, the gateways destroyed, much like the, the photo on the screen. What once was a city full of splendor now is the laughing stock of the nations, and the people are shadowed. Jerusalem has fallen. Jerusalem, the city, destroyed. But there's something, something more um, significant about Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, who knows what was at the center of the city? Was it on a mountain or a hill? What, what was right at the top of that hill? Temple. Why? So the temple of God was in the middle of the city. What does the temple represent to the Israelites? Uh, God's presence. I've heard a lot. But all, yeah, all good. God's presence. It represents God dwelling with his people through the temple in Israel. But now that's gone. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple torn down. The place where God meets with his people, <coughs> God. That special relationship God had with his people, broken. So the heart of this lament is God abandoning his people. They're left alone <coughs> by themselves with no one to help them. Their experience, their suffering, their symptom of their separation from God. Now, why don't you repeat that after me? Suffering is a symptom of their separation from God. Ready? Suffering is a symptom from their separation from God. The nations coming in, defeating their armies, being exiled, Jerusalem being destroyed, the humiliation, the torment, all were symptoms of the greater fallen, their separation from God. We see this throughout this text. Let's keep, keep reading and exploring this uh, from verse uh, 12. We'll keep reading. 
Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was afflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down to my bones. He spread a net from my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the, all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sat on stone. He has given me into the hands of those like panel with sand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. It is my press the Lord has trampled, virgin born Judah. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean among them. Clean things among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebel against his commandment. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone to set aside. I call to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the sea while they are searching for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within. In my heart I am disturbed, yet I've been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my mourning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day when you renounce them. May they may become like you. Let all their weakness come before you. Deal with them as you dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. The Lord has afflicted suffering on Jerusalem and abandoned his people. We see that throughout. Uh, the Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst, all the special the, the warriors God has sent them out and, and left. We also see uh, the sorry, verse 19. Jerusalem's oh, I called my ally, but they betrayed me. Jerusalem's allies turned against her. But also her priests and elders, those who represented uh, God's presence and actually facilitated that relationship, they are held, they perished, they died. God has abandoned his people. And Jerusalem cries out for comfort. She, she cries out for comfort, but there's no one there to comfort her. You know, if I, if I were to go on a walk uh, with my son Josh, who's three, if he were to fall over and scrape his knee and start bleeding, crying, uh, what does he need most in that moment? It's not there. It's a cuddle. It's a hug from dad. That's why in, in the midst of suffering and in, for, for Jerusalem, for Israel, in their exile, in their torment, in their suffering, what they need most is comfort. They need a hug from their father, but, but that's not there. There's no one to comfort them. Why, why 
why not? Why all this torment? What is God doing with his people? This is his special people. He had that special relationship with them. Well, it's, there's some hints in one, but it's actually quite clear in chapter 2. We just read the first, just the first few verses. How long has, how long the Lord covered your Zion with the cloud of his anger? He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his foot in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of Borazan. He has brought her kingdom and his princes down to the ground with his son. So, why all this suffering of Israel? It's because God is angry at his people. He's working out his wrath, he's, he's enacting his justice against his people. Now you might ask, well, how can a loving God be angry? Like, isn't angry a bad emotion? And how could, you know, we're taught that God is love. How could he possibly be angry? Well, it's maybe very clear that he's not angry in the same sense that we get angry. Now, yesterday I was doing some, some concrete and um, getting the post off in to do a little concrete slab for that. I made the formwork. Out of wood, and while I was pouring the concrete in, it broke, and which I was mad, like, oh. and I was out of control. I was trying to kick it back into place, and just got made it worse. And I was out of control in anger. Thankfully, not too out of control. We sorted it out. But but God is not out of control anger. You know, if you you know, you kids, if you have a toy that breaks and you just get angry, you just can't control your emotions. That's not how God. Is angry. One of my uh, one of my favorite um, scholars, Morton Kaiser, he says this: God's anger is never explosive, unreasonable, or unexplained. It is rather his firm expression of real displeasure to our wickedness and sin. Even in God, is never a force or ruling passion. It doesn't overtake him. Rather, it's an instrument. For his will. And his anger has not, thereby, shut off his compassion to us. So, effectively, what Walter is saying is that his anger is a tool to use to express his love. Because I've, I said this a couple of weeks ago the opposite of love is not anger, the opposite of love is indifference. If God were to do nothing, Again, you think of, 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 his, of my child, if Josh were to be running out onto the street in front of an oncoming car, for me to love in that moment is me chasing down, tackling him, throwing him out of the way, maybe not even get hurt, but that is love. For me, being indifferent, not doing anything, is horrible. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. And in fact, God's anger is a, is a tool of his love. He expresses his love by being angry at us, by, by, by um, showing his love, so that we might listen. We might recognize that, that how we live and the decisions that we make uh, have, have gone away from him. We might realize the path that we're on so that we might repent and turn and return to him. 
Because why is God angry? The lamentation. It's because Israel has sinned. And that comes out in the book. They, throughout this book, they do confess that they recognize the reason because they sinned. 1 verse 18 probably says it the most clearest. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his commands. God's special relationship he established with his people, they broke. They disobeyed his commands. And so God handed them over to their decisions. And he he did what he said he would do. Because when he established that special relationship, he, he told the Israelites that if you obey my commands, if you live according to my covenant, you'll be blessed, you'll be prosperous for you. But if you disobey, you'll be cursed, you'll be exiled, you'll you'll be punished for, for choosing that wicked way. And so 2 verse 17. Uh, the Lord has done what he had planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. Suffering is a symptom of our separation from God because of our sin. Suffering is a symptom of our separation from God because of our sin. And Zion, Jerusalem, is lamenting, crying out to God for the suffering that she is experience. And right at the, the end of chapter 1, she, she turns this lament into a cry. That those who are pressing me experience the same uh, oppression. All my enemies have heard uh, of my distress. They rejoice what you've done. May you bring the day you've announced that they may become like me. That she's calling out, declaring, even accusing God of injustice towards her. And that's suggesting that her experience that she's going through is not how things are meant to be. And when we experience suffering, the suffering that we experience, whether small or big, we know deep in our hearts this is not how things are meant to be. So not only should our suffering lead us to repentance, lead us to think about our own uh, separation from God and actually return to it. That suffering should point us forward and give us hope for a time uh, where, where that won't be the case anymore. Suffering anticipates belief, it anticipates the solution, it suggests things are not how they're meant to be. And so there's a place where we cry out, How long? How long, Lord? How long will we? Allow this world to go on with this God before He will come and He will do something. So, before I conclude, I want to pause and just sit in that space for a minute. The band are going to come and perform a song. How long? And we can then sit and reflect on that, and then after that, I'll come.
Uh, the book of Lamentations teaches us many things of how to deal with our own suffering. 
One of the things I've already said, suffering is a symptom of our separation from God that also anticipates uh, when that won't be the case, that we no longer will be separated. And I want to um, skip ahead, uh, Tim, to uh, Lamentations. Um, one of the things it teaches us is we, we lament in the full context of God's plan, of God's story. So uh, what Israel was experiencing, uh, which... Uh, if you go forward a few slides to Israel, they're in the land, um, exiled, skipping a bit for time. Um, yeah, Israel, they're living in the land, but because of their sin, because they rejected God's covenant, they exiled and Jerusalem was restored. Sorry, destroyed. That's where Lamentations is sitting. But in the full uh, story of the Bible, there's a promise. It's when they return to God, when they repent and return, there will be a restoration. And, and coming out of a time where they had no comfort, God promises comfort. Isaiah 40 says, prophesying of this time, says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There will be a time for Israel where Israel will return and Jerusalem will be restored. Now, they do come out of exile, but Jerusalem is never perfectly restored. It never goes back to what God had fully promised. And it's actually something bigger than just Israel. That, that's actually also the story of all creation. God created us and made us in the image of God and put us in this paradise in Eden. And But because of our sin, because we rejected God, we broke His commands, we were exiled, sent out from that. And there's, there's death and judgment. And all creation is groaning because of uh, the suffering that we we experience because of the separation from God. Romans 8, 18 to 22 uh, says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Keep going, I don't have it in front of me, sorry. But the uh, creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation anticipates the future of a time where it will be restored. There will be a new creation. It will be brought back. Now, how is God going to do that? Well, there was a man. God came down in the, in the form of a man, Jesus. And he lived in Israel. He lived a perfect life. But he too was subjected to judgment and death. It wasn't his judgment, but ours. And he was buried. And uh, 1 Peter 2 says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leading leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found 
in Israel. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. He paid the punishment that we deserved. But even more than that, the next verse re reveals how special the work of Jesus truly is. He says, for you were once like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus died and took the punishment. He paid the price for that what separated us. Suffering is a symptom of a separation from God. But Jesus died and paid the punishment because of our, that we deserve because of our sin, so that no more would we be separated. And so now God dwells in us by His Spirit. And what is now a spiritual reality, one day will be a physical reality. And I want to I end at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. Uh, the great promise and the anticipation and the expectation that we have, those who are faithful in Jesus. Uh, John the, the seer says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, looking beautifully dressed for her husband. The new Jerusalem, restored, perfected, uh, coming down onto earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The, the great climax of, of the end of all of history, of all time and, and space and everything, the, the greatest hope we have as Christians is that one day God will dwell with his people. Suffering is a symptom of our separation from God. What happens when we physically dwell with God? Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. That is the hope that we have. That's the hope of Lamentations. Anticipating a time when God will return and restore all things. Suffering is hard. It's, it's, it's terrible. And so, you know, how do we respond to it? We shouldn't be, we shouldn't deny, we should provide spaces to, to talk about, to, to, to share about, actually be honest with each other. There's, there's a prayer space at the back, a space actually to talk and lament the experiences we're going to in the church, we should be using that to its full capacity. We shouldn't be overreacting, but actually living in tension of not, you know, resisting and, and um, uh, yeah, resisting suffering because it's bad, it's not how things are, but also being faithful and enduring in the hope that we have of the future. And we shouldn't be victimized ourselves because we're not defined by the suffering that we're going through, we're defined by the God who saved us, that we are His children and one day we will dwell with Him. That is the hope of Lamentations. It's not overly clear in the text. But the fact that they lament and they, they, they cry 
cry out so much for the injustice of the situation suggests that there's something more. And this world is crying out. Just look at the news, the media, look at social media, cry out. There's a lot of injustice in the world. And that is telling us there's something not quite right. This is not how things are meant to be. And God agrees. We've been separated from him. And he's calling us to return to him through the work that Jesus did on the cross. That's why, to finish, we're going to celebrate communion. Looking back to what Jesus did on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, but also looking forward to when he'll return. That what is now a spiritual reality, that we, we are connected and return and reconcile with God, will become a physical reality. We will live in that restored, perfected Jerusalem. So I'm going to hand over to Cam, who's going to lead us in.